0: Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. It's, uh, it's great to be with you this morning. As Rob mentioned, my name is David Leventhal. And uh, my wife and I are coming up on 25 years here in a couple months, and I got a picture of my crew for those that we've not got a chance to meet. So I've got, we've got seven kids. Um, uh, that we're, we're, it's, it's chaos, but it's my chaos. So 20, 18, 17, 16, 14, 10, and 6. I think I got that right. And uh, so that's my crew. For if, if we haven't gotten to meet you in person, it's nice to meet you. Uh, okay, so we're starting this new series this morning called In Living Color, and we're going to be looking, at, uh, looking in the Gospels at different snapshots of, of Jesus. And just like um, you would never want to judge a band by one song or, or an artist by one piece of work, you want to look at the, the portfolio of art or the catalog of their music to really get an understanding of, of that artist or that band, we're going to do that with Jesus. We're going to be um, really intentionally diving into different snapshots about Jesus so that we can get a good understanding, at least we can try, to really figure out who is this man that all of human history pivots on. To start the series, we're gonna be in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, as David Gentiles mentioned, and I, I want us to hear the whole passage. It's, we're not gonna read all of chapter 11, we're gonna read one to 44, so it's a pretty big slug of scripture, but I want us to hear um, the whole passage, and then we're gonna dive in to some of the verses. I really wanna focus in on just a couple of verses. So. Um, If you're like me, you like to know kind of where we're going. Uh, Consider this message, we'll call it one part exegetical verse by verse and two parts thematic is where we're gonna be this morning, okay? Sound good? Yeah. All right, if you have got your Bibles, turn to John 11. I'm gonna read it and then we'll dive in. Starting in verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and and we're gonna go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's gonna be an odor for he's been dead four days. Jesus said did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the count of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go." Okay, when we're studying uh, a historical narrative like the Gospels or Genesis, Exodus, um, as we try and figure out what does it mean for us, there's really three layers we have to work through. The first layer, particularly in the Gospels, is what was Jesus trying to teach those who were with him when the event happened? So Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples, what was Jesus' ambition and aim and target for, for the people that were with him? The second layer is what did the writer of the gospel account or that book, what was their intent when they wrote it? In other words, when John wrote his gospel in the uh, late first century AD, what was his purpose? He was writing to group people, what was his purpose? And then the third layer is what does it mean for us today as believers living in 2000, 2023 in North Texas? What does it mean for us today? If we were gonna be spending three weeks on this passage going verse by verse, I would take quite a bit of time to unpack the first two layers. I don't have that kind of time, and so let me just summarize for you. Um, What it meant for Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the disciples. Fortunately for us, Jesus tells us what his purpose is in this whole miracle. So it's good for us to know that going up. In verse four, talking to the disciples, Jesus says, this illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So purpose number one, the glorification of the son of God. Two, verse 14, then Jesus told the disciples again, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So for the disciples, for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the point of this event was to tangibly show them God's glory, and to increase their faith. This, this miracle is actually the, the peak of John's gospel up to this point, and it reveals what all the other miracles before this were pointing to, which is in 25, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in him shall not die. That's the purpose, okay? So let's speed it up a little bit, and let's get us to 2023. What are we to do with this passage? How does this impact us? Well, we look at these 44 verses and the truth is there's a lot of what, what I'll call timeless truths that we could extract and apply into our life. But I wanna focus just on one this morning, and it's this. God is more concerned with the growth of our faith than he is the elimination of our suffering. God is more concerned with the growth of our faith than he is the elimination of our suffering. Why do I say that? Because God saves people, it says in Romans 8, that they may be conformed to the image of Christ. Conformed to the image of Christ. And the way that God does this, one of the primary ways that God accomplishes this, making us into the image of Christ and deepening our faith is through suffering. It's through times when God shows up late, as it were. Okay? now. That, even that language, God showing up late, that may be like, I'm gonna repeat that phrase. And that may seem a bit irreverent to you because we're used to cute little pithy coffee mug sayings like only God can show up late and still be on time and uh, your blessings will be right on time, on God's time. These little pithy statements. And, and these statements have within them a really critical, deep, deep theological reality to them, which is that God exists outside of space and time. This is hard for us frail mortals to wrap our brain around. What this means is, among other things, is that God has no beginning and no end. He sees the beginning, and he sees all the way to the end in one glance. He's not bound by days and weeks and hours and minutes. He's outside of time. So from a top-down perspective, God can never be late because time is irrelevant to God. It's immaterial, he's not in time. So of course he can never be late. He stands outside of time, but Okay, we're not outside of space and time, are we? We're bound to minutes and hours and days, weeks and months. Add to that the fact that just as generally as a species, we're pretty weak and frail. Some of us can't even get our pants on without falling over. So this idea of God outside of space and time is hard for us to wrap our brains around, which is why sometimes when you're in the middle of a season of pain or suffering, it can be confusing. It can be discouraging. When you feel like God is staying where he was two days longer than maybe he should have. So from a bottom-up perspective, from a bottom-up perspective, which is us, it sure can feel like God showed up late, okay? So that's what I mean when I talk about God showing up late. We're gonna be wading into some deeper waters this morning to really get to know Jesus as best we can. Sometimes we have to swim out beyond the buoys into some darker waters. And this morning we're gonna be kind of out past the buoys a little bit. Okay, so let me, I wanna go back. I wanna just summarize, I wanna unpack our passage to make sure we all understand what's happening and then we'll go from there. So in this story, John 11, we've got three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, These were folks we read in the gospels that had gone all in with Jesus. In fact, John tells us it was this, this was the Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And, and they, the brother Lazarus, he's sick. I mean, he's, he's really sick on, on death's doorbed stick. And so, Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus and they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love, Phileo, is the Greek word. It's the idea of the brotherly love. We talk about the Philadelphia Eagles and the city of brotherly love. Phileo is the Greek word for love that talks about that. Like, man, I love that guy like a brother. I'm all in for him. Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's a plea for these two women. We know you love Lazarus, Lord, we, we know you phileo Lazarus, and he's, he's not in a good spot. Would you please come and help us? So Jesus gets the message from the, the women. He loops in his disciples, his 12 guys, and gives them a lowdown of what's going on. And so if you are reading this letter for the first time, or what are you expecting to happen? What would you expect when you've got a gospel account of a guy that Jesus loves, who's at door, death's doorstep. And up into this point in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus in John two, turn water into wine. In John four, we, see, we saw Jesus heal from afar, simply by declaring it so, uh, he healed an official son who was at the point of death. In John five, we saw Jesus heal a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. John six, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. John six, Jesus walks on water. John nine, Jesus heals a man born blind. So when you find out that Lazarus is sick, what are you expecting to have happen? To heal him. We're expecting, the next verse in the Gospel of John says, and Jesus and the disciples made haste to Bethany. Or or Jesus said, go, Lazarus will live. But that's not what happened. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Jesus loved Agapo from the Agape. This wasn't. This isn't a brotherly love. This is the love that God has for His people. The unconditional love of like nothing you do is going to change it. Now Jesus, agapo, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I'd like us just to sit in these verses for a moment. Imagine you're Mary and Martha and you found out Jesus got your message but decided to hang out there for two more days. Why would he not hustle to Bethany? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem loving. It, candidly, it feels cruel. If I'm honest, it just is like, what, what are you doing? Couldn't Jesus have healed Lazarus? John wants you to not miss this. So the, the, John, the author, Three times he makes this point, so you can't miss it. In verse 21, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary in verse uh, 32, when Mary came and saw Jesus, uh, she fell at his feet saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 36, the Jews said, look at how he loved him. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? John wants you to be certain Jesus could have healed Lazarus and he stays where he was two days longer. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You ever ask that question? I have, a lot. Most recently with my dad. Look, my dad loved the Lord Jesus, came to faith in college. He was um, an incredible man. He served Jesus faithfully for 50 years. He was a great husband, a great father, a great grandfather. He was a brilliant theologian. He has PhD in systematic theology. He was a world-round expert on the Holocaust. He was a pastor, he was a teacher, he was a friend. And he played football usually UCLA in the 60s and it did a number on his body. And so as he aged, he began to have pretty significant orthopedic issues. And so he had both knees replaced. He had both hips replaced. In 1995, he had his first back surgery that would lead to a number more that his entire back, bottom to top had been fused, bottom to top. And he was in excruciating pain for a long time. In fact, the last 10 years of his life, you know, he was, Um, his quality of life was diminishing because he was always in pain. And his ability to enjoy these last laps of his life with his wife and his grandkids and kids and his ability to teach and minister and write was cut short. And so God could not you who opened the eyes of the blind and have kept my dad from suffering, from losing what should have been the best years of his life. You ever asked that? You have seasons in your life like that? What are we supposed to do when the Savior we say we believe and trust and Hope in decides to stay away two days longer. How should we think about God who shows up late? So my hope this morning is that our hearts would be strengthened, we'd be encouraged, and our perspective renewed as we better understand what's behind the truth, that God is more concerned with the growth of our faith than he is the elimination of our suffering. Number one, God showing up late is normal. The truth is, we de- the delay we see from Jesus in John 11 is normative for the believer, to allow suffering is part of the Christian life because God is more concerned with the strengthening of our faith than he is the elimination of our suffering. If you've lived on planet earth long enough, you have been punched in the mouth by life. I don't need to tell this to you, but I do want to ground it in scripture. I want to look at Hebrews 11 quickly. We just finished spending a lot of weeks in Hebrews. I want to go back to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. There's 16 men and women mentioned by name in the first part of Hebrews 11, commended for their faith, uh, their, their um, uh, prevailing faith. And then we get to the end of Hebrews 11 and 35, and and there's these words. It says, "Some uh, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep, goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens of caves of the earth. We read about... This section of Hebrews, and it's almost like it's just an appendix to the first part of the the chapter, but it's not. This is what most Christians since 2,000 years ago have been experiencing, is suffering and torture and mistreatment. And yeah, we've got 16 names at the beginning of the Hebrews 11 that we need to focus on, but most of the Christian faith falls in 36 to 39. What about those who have been walking with Jesus since he came? Because that Hebrews 11, that's all pre-Jesus, What about the church and believers since Jesus? Well, Peter writes to the church, he says, beloved, do not be um, surprised at the fiery trials that have come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter doesn't want the church to be surprised at the fiery trials because he knows they're a part of the program. And this verse here is specifically talking about persecutions, but the concept is more broadly applied. And by the way, this isn't some minor thread in your New Testament. This idea of suffering being normal is your New Testament. I could go to John 16, Acts 14, Romans eight, first three, first Peter one, and on and on and on. Suffering is normal for the believer, but I don't have to, I mean, this room, if I, if I had to guess, our experience affirms this. I bet if we knew all the suffering that's going on in this room right now illnesses friends who have died chronic pain marriages that are in not in a good way spouses maybe that have bailed prodigal children miscarriages infertility some of us have come from really dysfunctional homes and we're trying to figure out how to navigate life after being hurt by the ones that were supposed to protect us We've got children some prodigal children I'm sure in here that are represented whose decisions daily just break your heart. Some of us have been suffered the shrapnel of a grenade that was tossed into your living room and you had nothing to do with it, but now you got to pull shrapnel out of your flesh for the next coming years. For some of us, it's not a huge one-time event. It's the, it's the day in and day out just uh, suffering of life. It's the death by a thousand cuts, right? It's, it's when you just have no more to give because it's just one small thing after the next. And on occasion, the Lord shows up and performs a miracle and that thing goes away instantly. And when that happens, we gotta rejoice and give thanks. But more often than not, God chooses to employ suffering. He uh, doesn't miracle them out because it teaches us to walk by faith one painful step at a time through all the nonsense. So Paul, uh, Peter would say, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that shows up on your doorstep. But just because something is normal doesn't make it helpful, does it? I'm going to. Scripture teaches us that God God showing up late is necessary. I want to be really clear here. If you know Jesus Christ, Scripture teaches that you have been forgiven of your sins, not because of anything you've done, but because of the unmerited and abundant grace and mercy of Christ. You have been forgiven. Uh, moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. Your eternity is secure. Your sin's paid for. The Holy Spirit of God has been sent to indwell you as a promise that you belong to God. That is what we call your position in Christ, okay? That's your position in Christ. That's true. And though that's true, there's this other element where your sin nature has to continually be weeded out of your life over the next coming years, over time. Not time, days and weeks, but months and years, It's the process, we call it sanctification. It's the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus over time. And this process is painful. And so because God is more concerned with the growth of our faith than he is the elimination of our suffering, he allows it, he brings it, or he ordains it in our life. I wanna look at three passages to help us get our brains around this. One is, I think, one that's a little less known in Hebrews seven. Suffering was necessary for Jesus. Suffering was necessary for Jesus. It says in Hebrews five, in the days of his flesh, Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Two important phrases in this passage. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus prayed to him who was able to save him from death. Was Jesus saved from death? No. Jesus was in the garden and he asked the father, can you let this cup pass? And the father said, no. It also says that Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. If the father felt that it was necessary for Jesus in his humanity during his earthly ministry to learn obedience through what he suffered, then it follows that the father would want the same thing for those who follow the son. In other words, if the son required suffering to learn obedience, then those of us that call the son our savior we ought to expect it in our lives as well. Suffering is necessary because it produces in us qualities we lack. Qualities we lack, James 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The the hard truth that James is teaching is that our faith would be incomplete, it would be lacking if we didn't experience deep suffering. Suffering is meant to produce things in our hearts that cannot be produced any other way. Greater dependence on Christ, greater compassion for others, a greater longing for what is our true home, our greater disdain for the fallen nature of this world, a greater understanding of the state of our rebel will that still exists. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, The redemptive effect of suffering lies chiefly in its tendency to reduce the rebel will. The redemptive effect in suffering lies chiefly in its tendency to reduce the rebel will. And uh, for me, based on just like, tell you a little bit about me, I was, based on the description of my dad, you probably can discern that I was raised in a Christian home. And I was. My parents shared the gospel with me in a way that, we try to share it with our kiddos, and, and it, but it was never my faith. It was always their faith. It was never anything personal to me until the Lord got a hold of me in January or uh, spring of 1993 when I was in my freshman year at James Madison. That's when the Lord got a hold of me. And I remember thinking, as I began to understand what does it look like to walk with Jesus, I remember thinking, all right, I think I'd understand this. There's three things the Lord wants me to, to figure out, wants me to get, give to Him. One is I got to stop cussing, I got to stop talking about a sailor. Two, I got to stop, stop drinking. I mean, like, that's got to go. And three, I got to figure out how to have a relationship with a woman that's not wildly inappropriate. And I thought to myself, if I could get those three things under control, I'm great. I'm golden. And it was like, okay. As weeks go by and you realize, that's cute, that's cute, Lev. That you think that it's, it's those three things and you're going to be there. And, and then you realize as you walk with Jesus, as you get punched in the mouth by life, oh, okay. So it's not just my language. It's like, my thought life. It's, it's bitterness. It's not just, it's not just I shouldn't get drunk. It's like, I sh- what are the things that may be controlling me that I need to weed out? It's not just inappropriate relationships with girls. It's like thought life. It's, it's motives. It's how I feel like all of a sudden you realize the more you come to know Jesus, the, 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 the darker and the deeper your depravity still lies. And I think if we're honest, my guess is Uh, What I've experienced in 30 years of walking with Jesus in my life and in the lives of others is that I think we overestimate where we are in our sanctification process. I think we would say, yeah, I get it. I mean, yes, Lev, you're right. I could use a little bit of, I've got some rough edges that the Lord needs to file off. Some suffering probably would help me be less impatient with my wife. But I think if the Lord would allow us to do a deep dive, I mean, a really uncomfortable deep dive into our heart, I think you would discover I think we would discover that there are corners of our heart that are horrific, where darkness lies and grows like a mold, things you would think that you would never say out loud. That still has real estate in our heart. And uh, it takes uh, suffering to weed that out. That sin nature I talked about, it's gonna be fighting for prominence in your life until you die. And even though I have a day where I'm like, hey, I feel pretty good. Man, I was generally loving and kind, and, and, and it was, I feel like, man, I'm making real progress. And then I think back, I'm like, well, the reality is, is I just didn't run into anybody annoying. <laughs> nobody, nobody cut me off in traffic. Like, so, I, I mean, yeah, it was a, it was a good day, Lev, because you had a day where people didn't bother you. There's still so much darkness. The deeper you come, though, Jesus, the more clear you become on that darkness, which is why the apostle Paul the guy who wrote 50% of your New Testament, he would write that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. That's Paul. I'm the worst of them. The more Paul came to understand and know who Jesus was, the more he realized the darkness that lived in his heart. And I know, I know sometimes it's like, Lord, just leave me alone. I'd rather you just step back then bring all this refinement process. But if we're gonna ask that of the Lord, we're asking him to to be something that he can't be. We're asking him to love us less, not love us more, because he's concerned about the development of our faith. That's more important than this present darkness. Paul would say later to the church in Corinthians that um, we don't lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For that which is seen is transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And look, I know many times our afflictions don't feel light and they certainly don't feel momentary, but I only have a concept of light because I've had to carry something heavy. I've only, I only only have the concept of momentary because I know what it's like to have to wait a long time for something. And the truth is uh, that deep foundational truth, uh, deep foundational transformation doesn't occur on the mountaintops. It, doesn't, it occurs as it did for Paul when he got knocked on his butt on the road to Damascus and saw the risen Christ and it changed everything for him. And, and, and Paul began to be convinced that there's, this is not all that there is, there's something more. This suffering is necessary because it, it's preparing us for where we're gonna be going. And so because everything in Paul's life fell under the, um, the calculation of my life here is temporary, I'm gonna be with the Lord forever, so whatever happens here, it's light and momentary. So, you know, who in this room wants to be more like Jesus? I mean, right, so the full credit answer because we're in church is like, well, of course I do. But if we're honest, most of us would love to be less of ourselves and more of Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus Christ wants that same thing for you. And he is 1000% committed to making you more like himself, more loving and joyful, and peace, patience, all that stuff. But the hard truth is, is that the most effective mechanism for accomplishing that goal is through the refining fire of suffering. You wanna be more like Jesus? Then we gotta go through the fire to have the dross removed. That's why God's more concerned with the growth of our faith than the elimination of our suffering because he's he's preparing us for our true home. So suffering is normal and it's necessary. So Lev, are you saying for the rest of my life, I ought to expect moments, maybe seasons of deep suffering? Well, I'll quote C.S. Lewis again. He says, if tribulation is necessary, If tribulation is a necessary element in redemption, then we must anticipate that it will never cease until God sees the world either to be redeemed or no further redeemable. Well, that's just awesome. (laughs) Be of good cheer. But we're not done, okay? I wanna read a section from John 11 again. I want you to look for three sets of two words. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, and oh Lord, come and see, Jesus wept. Deeply moved, if, uh, in the Greek, this is actually a softening of the word, deeply moved. It's a softening of the Greek word, which really means indignation, anger, outrage. That's what the word means. Jesus was angry, outraged. He was indignant, greatly troubled. It's the idea of being shaken, disturbed of inner turmoil. This is what Jesus experienced. He uses it, again, Jesus does, when he's with the disciples and he shares with them that one of the twelve is about to betray him. It says he was deeply troubled. He was shaken. And then Jesus wept. He who was present at the creation of the world, the one who holds everything together, the visible image of the invisible God shedding tears. And what's crazy is Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows what he's about to do, and he still weeps. So in the middle of the suffering of Mary and Martha and their friends, Jesus has this deep emotional moment. He's angry. He's upset. He weeps. In his humanity, he's experiencing the full impact of the brokenness of the world. But remember, Jesus loved Agapo, Mary, and Martha, and Lazarus. He's not distant. He's not indifferent. Jesus walked the dusty roads of uh, Israel with them. He he shared meals with them. He laughed with them. He comforted them. He taught them. He's not just their savior; he's their friend. And so, even though Jesus knows what he's about to do, he still weeps with them in their in their uh, in their sorrow. He still experiences their confusion and their frustration. And he he's upset at what capital S sin has done to the world. That death even exists. He's fully present in this unspeakably difficult moment. And so when I say that God is more concerned with the growth of our faith than he is the elimination of our suffering, it's not the same thing as saying that Jesus doesn't care or Jesus isn't different. No, 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 Jesus knows exactly, Jesus knows better than anybody what it's like to go through suffering, to experience the full weight of this fallen, broken piece of world. He was betrayed, abandoned, forsaken, He was mocked, skinned alive with a whip and nailed to a cross and he did everything right. And that's what he got. Jesus knows better than anybody what it means to suffer. And he enters in with Mary and Martha. So look, when you're at your lowest, when your soul is groaning and the suffering feels like it's just gonna swallow you up, you ever felt like that? Sadness is gonna just eat you alive. When the last thing you wanna do is come here and sing the songs, listen to the word read. When uh, out of the overflow of hurt and confusion and frustration, you shake your fist and you curse God, you need to know. Your savior, your sympathetic high priest, your brother is in that moment and in every moment leading up to that moment, interceding for you before the father. Jesus never turns his back on his brothers. The father never turns his back on the, on the son, uh, those that follow the son. The, cease, the spirit never ceases to stop bringing comfort. How do I know it to be true? Hebrews 7:25, 1 John 2, 1, Romans 8, which I want to read right now. Jesus lives to intercede for us. Christ Jesus is the one who died, says Paul. More than that, the one who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is gonna separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus showing up late does not reflect indifference or unkindness. It shows that he loves you, he is there for you, and you are not walking alone. God is more concerned, guys, with the growth of our faith and the elimination of our suffering. And we can talk about it being normal. We can talk about it being necessary. We can talk about the fact that we don't go through it alone, but that's not gonna make it less hard and it sure won't make it go away. There's not three easy tips for a better golf swing when it comes to suffering. There's no shortcuts. So what are we to do? Well, I'm not gonna burden you with like a list of things you should do. I think for many of us, the right next step is just to simply think about some things. So I wanna share with you four things I think maybe you might consider just thinking about and meditating on in the coming weeks and months. As you ask the Lord, those of us that are in the thick of a season of suffering, just to give you the strength to go one day at a time. Number one, when the sky is dark, and I mean really dark, and you're at your lowest and you feel like there's no hope, remember, you are loved. You are loved. Romans 5, Romans 8, Psalm 23, Ephesians 1. Number two, when in the midst of your suffering, you question God's love and his goodness. Remember, God is not angry with you for having those thoughts, for having those questions. He understands why you might feel and think those things. And he's not mad. We're looking at the back of the quilt that looks like a train wreck. Jesus, the father's on the other side of the quilt. He knows exactly what he's doing. And it looks like a mess to us sometimes, but he's doing something. You're loved. The father has compassion. Number three, when you're weary and desperate, desperately wanting the season you're in to come to an end, remember that God is at work, painful though it is, to make you more like Jesus. There is a purpose in your pain, even when we can't see it. 2 Corinthians 4, James 1, first Thess 5. And lastly, remember that our story is gonna end like Lazarus' story. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Is your current suffering gonna end? I don't know. Maybe. The reality is when we're out in our little tiny boat on the lake and the sea is churning, and the waves are crashing, God's got three options. And all three of those options provide the opportunity for him to be glorified equally. Option one is he can calm the sea. He can take the storm away and he can be glorified in that. He can, he can keep the storm going to keep you out there for a little while longer and he can, he can be glorified in that. Or he can sink the boat and he can be glorified in that. But if you know Jesus Christ and have trusted to Him for the forgiveness of sins, then one day, like Lazarus, you will be called out of the tomb. You'll close your eyes here, and you'll open them in the presence of Christ. And your deepest suffering, pain, and tears will be a distant memory, as your faith is perfected in the presence of God. So, until then, let's help one another keep our eyes fixed on the horizon fixed on Jesus. Let's pray for each other the way Paul prays for his friends, that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at CityBridgeCC. See you next time.